Hi, I'm Chantal. I have ADHD. Welcome to episode four of this podcast. In this episode, I want to talk about my presentation of ADHD. As I've said before, everyone who has ADHD is going to be a little bit unique. There are lots of traits that come with ADHD. And a lot of us have very specific ones, a very specific array of them. You're not going to find people who have these particular 10, because lots and lots and lots and lots of people have these particular 10 and not the others. And, you know, it's very much, there, there are a lot of different potential symptoms because ADHD affects a lot of areas of life. And some of them are direct symptoms caused directly by ADHD, and other things might be things that are caused by having ADHD. What do I mean by that? Because that sounds probably like the same thing, caused by ADHD, caused by having ADHD. Well, having ADHD can make you prone to getting certain responses from people, or to not succeeding at certain things that you don't get to opt out of, like laundry. Nobody gets to opt out of laundry <laughs> unless you've got lots of money or you have someone close to you or who lives with you who adores doing laundry and offers to do it. Or unless you're five. <laughs> if you're five, you also get to opt out of doing laundry. But you know what I mean. Um, there are a lot of things that we don't get to opt out of in life that we have to do that create well, things that we are likely to fail at. And when we have negative feedback, when we have points of failure, and there are just so many of them compared to someone who doesn't have ADHD. Um, although people who don't have ADHD, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't also struggling with something else or many something else's. It, not having ADHD doesn't mean having clean bill of mental health, physical health, etc. Of course not. That's, that's not how that works. Um, but you know what I mean. Um, someone who is neurotypical won't have the same struggles. So what was I saying about this? So having ADHD makes you prone to certain failures, makes you get a lot of negative feedback, and then that can in turn create anxiety. That can create depression. It creates sort of this, it sets a stage for other troubles to come in because misery loves company. And so does ADHD. Now, ADHD can also be great. Do I know this personally yet? Nope. I, as I've said before, am at the start of my learning with ADHD. Does that mean it's day one for me or week one? No. But the way that I see it, this is probably going to take a rather long time to really fully explore and, and I'll be continually exploring, I'm sure, but to really fully explore ADHD, how it presents for me, what it looks like for all of us, because as the years go by and the decades go by, we're also, all of us, probably going to understand more and more things about ADHD in general for the population. Where was I going with that? See? Brain. So there are lots of traits that are associated with having ADHD. Some of them directly caused by ADHD, some of them indirectly, just because you have ADHD, you might have these things. 
we might not all have the same ones. And there are so many to choose from. And you don't have to have, you know, 50% of them to be diagnosed with ADHD. There are lots and lots and lots of, of very subtle symptoms that are just things that um, are not necessarily diagnostic traits. Some of these are things that we've, you know, picked up from papers about ADHD, from academic papers, from articles, from experience, from, you know, qualitative research. Um, these are very subtle traits. Now, there are also traits that are diagnostic, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But what I'm going to say here is that with all these more subtle traits, um, that's sort of where I want to talk about my particular presentation of ADHD and why every presentation of ADHD is going to be a little bit unique because there's just so much to choose from. Not that our brain chooses, I'm sorry, that is not the right word, but you know where I'm going with this. Before we get into that, let's start at the start. And not, not at the start start, because the start start would actually be early childhood having undiagnosed ADHD, which I do want to do an episode on. There will be one, but that's not going to be today. Today, what I want to focus in on more is my adult presentation and how I understand it right now and how it's been in more recent years. So with that, I figure that a good segue into this is going to be that lovely form that I was talking about. It's a symptoms checklist. You can find it online. Uh, the actual name of the form here is called Adult ADHD Self-Report Scale, in parentheses, ASRS hyphen V1.1. Symptoms checklist. Sorry, symptom checklist. So we have six questions in part one and then 12 questions in part two. Sorry, it's, it's part A and part B. Just so that if you are looking at this, yes, it is the same one if you're seeing part A and part B. That's right. Okay, I want to go into this because this is the first thing that sort of, when that light switch went on, this is really what made it go on. Once we had the idea, because I, I talked about my story, you know, my husband sort of gave me the notion but this is really what sort of lit it up for me was, oh, oh, I do have a number of these symptoms. Oh my goodness, I do screen into this. Oh my gosh, really? No way. So if you feel like doing this with me, you can, but you don't have to. I'll also reiterate that you should, uh, if you do do it and you are curious about if you have it and you think that you might, it is really good to have someone else do it as well for you, uh, for how they see you and how they see these symptoms for you. Uh, sorry, traits. Symptoms, traits, kind of the same thing, I suppose, in this instance. Um, before I get into that, I just wanted to add a couple of uh, clarifications about the last episode. And this is probably going to be a regular enough thing because ADHD. Um, they're going to be things that I either forget in one episode and need to mention in the next, or that I need to clarify because my brain totally fogged on something and I need to fix it. Um, I'm, I'm trying to accept that I'm not going to be perfect. Um, yeah, that's a tough thing for me because 
I aim for perfection. I don't know why it's not, well, no, I do know why it's ADHD. It's not intentional and I pretty much never achieve it. And trying to aim for perfect is really not a healthy thing. I am, I am trying, trying very much to curb this, but it's going to take some time. I get that. <laughs> okay. So, um, the first thing that I wanted to mention about the last episode was, um, with Dr. David Harrell, one of the things that he mentioned as well with ADHD, um, was that he was concerned, uh, that as well on the medication side, that if I were to try an upper, like a stimulant, like, uh, Adderall, he was worried that because I had anxiety, that that could make the anxiety spike. That could make it worse. I wanted to mention that because that's that's kind of an important point, isn't it? And, and other people might end up having someone say this to them. And what I want to mention about it is that while, you know, if you had just straight up anxiety, that's not secondary, because as I mentioned in that last episode, anxiety and depression in my particular case is actually caused by ADHD. It's caused by having ADHD. Because ADHD creates so much negativity and creates so much failure um, in this neurotypical world that I'm struggling to keep up with and, and cope in, it, it creates a lot of opportunities for anxiety and depression to seep in. It creates a lot of space for those to exist. It creates a lot of things that make those happen. That is not fantastic. It's not great. So my anxiety, secondary. Yes, it can be a primary thing. It can be a thing that you have because you have anxiety. I mean, you know, obviously you probably have anxiety for other reasons as well. Um, but, you know, it can be like a primary diagnosis. But for me, it's secondary. And so what happens is when I got onto a stimulant for ADHD treatment, my anxiety lowered so much because when I was treating ADHD symptoms and managing that, well things were working better in my life suddenly. I was thinking more clearly. I was able to do things. I was able to take some amount of control that I just could not take no matter how much I tried before. And a lot of things were getting done where not getting them done was making me anxious. And they were getting done well so that when they weren't getting done well, that also made me anxious. But now that was also gone. So it was removing the things that created anxiety. I hope that makes sense. So I thought that was important to mention because, you know, it, it sort of makes sense on the surface. Oh, okay, you have anxiety. An upper would probably make you more, you know, more anxious, more nervous, more, you know. It makes sense until you think about it more in the context of ADHD. There's another side to that. So I thought I'd mention that. 
because I had completely forgotten about it, honestly, until I had finished the episode. Thing number two that I wanted to say about the episode as well, um, I realized when I listened back, I was struggling a lot with... I, I was trying to express something that I don't know why my brain was having such a hard time with it that day. Um, when I was talking about boys being diagnosed versus girls, men versus women, um, I was saying um, cis men versus girls, women, non-cis men. Um, what I was really trying to say which I was not saying very, very clearly at all, was the diagnoses, by and large, of people who presented with male sex at birth, or presented with female sex at birth. Now, that leaves out presentations that are ambiguous at birth, or that are both at birth. There are different ways that I think we're expressing that at the moment. And also, as with a lot of stuff in medicine today, and for a very long time before today, the bodies of evidence that we have, the, the samples that we have, were by and large taken with gender bias. Even if it's unintentional, the gender bias is there. So there isn't a lot of sampling. There, there isn't a lot of studying that's been done on people who are trans, on people who are fluid. So that's kind of how I was trying to, to illustrate those two groups. And those for me are not, you know, two main groups of society. They're not exclusive in any way. Um, exclusive? They're not all-inclusive anyway. I'm not sure what I'm trying to say there. But point being, um, those are the main bodies of research that we have. Those are the main samplings that, that people have been using in ADHD research. Honestly, for the longest time, mainly just people who were presenting as male at birth. That's honestly the biggest body of, of sampling that we've had. Body of sampling, that's not the right term at all, but... Sorry, for some reason I am not zeroing in on the words today. My brain can't words. Ah! Hopefully it's coming across and you're sort of translating that into something that makes vague sense. <laughs> Anyhow, I just wanted to say that because it's an important distinction and it's also an important thing to note when we're looking at research in ADHD. That we're looking at who it includes, who it excludes at the moment. And just kind of what's up with that in general. Done. So those were my two points. Now, uh, to get into one's presentation of ADHD. So if you feel like doing this um, screener with me, uh, what I'm going to suggest you do is get a pen, pencil, what have you, phone, whatever, and we're just going to go through the questions 1 through 6 and then 7 through 18. So just write your number and then write your answer next to it. And then when we're done going through, let's look at what those answers mean. And as I go through, I'm also going to talk a little bit about how my interpretation of the questions has evolved a little bit. And also how some of the answers may change in time as we understand ourselves better, as we understand ADHD better, as we accept our traits 
more. You'll see. So, starting at the top, it says, Please answer the questions below, rating yourself on each of the criteria shown, using the scale on the right side of the page. As you answer each question, place an X in the box that best describes how you have felt and conducted yourself over the past six months. Please give this completed checklist to your healthcare professional to discuss during today's appointment. So in theory, you're doing it the day of your appointment. I don't think that's necessary, but anyhow. Question one. How often do you have trouble wrapping up the final details of a project once the challenging parts have been done? I'm going to read that again. For those who maybe have ADHD, sometimes you need to hear it twice. How often do you have trouble wrapping up the final details of a project once the challenging parts have been done? Now, this is a good time for me to mention my understanding of this question. When I first answered it, I had trouble because I was thinking, well, final challenges of a project, final details of a project once the, once the interesting, challenging bits have been done. Okay, um, like, first off, if you're anything like me, you have to contextualize. So you have to think of like, what, what were projects that I've done? What, what do I call a project? You know, my mind initially goes to work, a work project, or maybe, um, I guess if I was, a, you know, 10 years younger, maybe a university project, um, you know, but, but you can also think about projects around the house, around the apartment, um, in your personal life. Have you, have you been planning a trip? And you've gotten a lot of the organizational stuff done, but then, you know, you're trying to get to those final details of messaging people, details about it, um, you know, creating a, a list of, you know, how you can reach you or like, um, you know, stuff to give the people who are maybe going to look after your place or, you know, who need to check on you to make sure that you got there. Okay. I don't know. Now I'm, I'm talking about a trip, but I mean, obviously none of us are going on a trip right now. Um, unless it's for very good reasons. I'm not going on a trip right now. Um, I don't have any reason to. And if I don't have a need, I'm not going to go. I digress. Um, but it could be something like that. You know, project doesn't necessarily mean work or assignment. Project could mean I don't know. You've um, you've been redecorating your living room because the, the paint's been chipping and everything's just been a mess for forever. And you're you know you're freshening things up. Uh, you're fixing the you know, plaster work and the who knows what. You're decorating and then and then you've got some stuff all over the place. You know you you've got a drop cloth on the uh, a tarp on the, uh, not a tarp. What do you call that? Not a drop cloth. Drop sheet. The thing. You know. The thing for when you're painting. Oh my god. <laughs> you know the thing. Um, you've got, uh, you know, paintbrushes that need to be cleaned out. And they're just sort of soaking in turpentine and, and I don't know, slowly wasting away. And I don't know. Um, you know, you've got stuff to clean up. You've, you've got those little, not very satisfying ends of things. Sorry, I'm making this super long. You know what I mean. Think about each question 
not just in terms of work, school, performance, but also just personal projects. So how often do I have trouble wrapping up those final details? Fairly often. Fairly often. Anything that's kind of, you know, little remnants of something, like, uh, you know, I've, I've done my laundry... I've maybe folded some of it, or maybe my husband has helped me fold a bunch of it, and then it just doesn't get put away in a drawer. Why not? I don't know. But it just doesn't. Or I take a shower, and, you know, I I forget to, I don't know, hang up my, you know, towel in a decent place for it to actually dry or I don't know little things like that so I'm going to say often for that so the options here are never rarely sometimes often very often you can use numbers if you want you can just write the thing I'm going to say sometimes never rarely sometimes often very often uh sorry did I say sometimes uh I want to say often for me often question two and yes we will move along a little bit faster now Question two, how often do you have difficulty getting things in order when you have to do a task that requires organization? Again, how often do you have difficulty getting things in order when you have to do a task that requires organization? Now, notice two, it says how often, and it says difficulty, trouble, difficulty. A lot of them say trouble, difficulty, problems, um... It doesn't say that you can't get it done. Think about how hard it is to actually get it done. How much does it take from you personally, energy-wise? Do you have to psych yourself up a lot for it? Do you have to sort of uh, do something else and then come back to it? Um, you know, just how hard is it to do? It doesn't mean you can't do it. We all have things that we power through. But think about how easy or how hard it is to do. So for me, getting things in order, organization... Um, honestly, for a lot of that, that's kind of where I excel is like that, you know, oh, you have a mess of stuff that you need organized, like information that you need organized in a coherent, clear way. Okay, I can do that. Oh, you, you need a system in place for something? Oh, okay, I can do that. Sometimes I can't do it well for myself, although generally speaking, I can. I'm going to say I'm pretty good at that. So I'm going to say maybe never. I mean, it, it's probably not. Okay, maybe rarely. So never, rarely, sometimes, often, very often. I'm going to say rarely. Number three, how often do you have problems remembering appointments or obligations? How often do you have problems remembering appointments or obligations? Now, here I said often. I don't often miss them, but I actually have a mechanism, like a very strong mechanism in place for not missing them. Because if I didn't, I'd miss them all the time. And see, there's the key. Do I miss them? No, not, not a lot. But that's because I try really hard. That's because I've created an organizational system as a coping mechanism so that I don't have that happen. And otherwise it would. Number four, when you have a task that requires a lot of thought, how often do you avoid or delay getting started? 
when you have a task that requires a lot of thought? How often do you avoid or delay getting started? For me, um, if it requires a lot of thought, you know, that means that it's not super stimulating. It means that I have to really work my brain at it. Um, you know, that it's not just like something that's naturally like, oh yeah, inspiration. Now, if it requires a lot of brain power, I'd say very often, it can be really hard for me to get into that stuff. Number five, how often do you fidget or squirm with your hands or feet when you have to sit down for a long time? How often do you fidget or squirm with your hands or feet when you have to sit down for a long time? I didn't think I did that. Uh, turns out I do. I never thought about it. No one's ever mentioned it to me because um, if I'm fidgeting with my hands, they're under a table. If I have them, you know, above a table, I'm not fidgeting because I don't really want people to see me fidget. I feel self-conscious about that. Um, if I'm fidgeting with my feet, again, no one sees that. It's under the table. You know, if you're sitting at a table with people or a bench or a picnic table or what have you, or even having a Zoom call, people are not seeing those bits of me. But I'm doing it, and I never realized I did it because I didn't notice. And why would I notice? It's a thing that I just do. Very often... I'm going to put very often. How often do you feel overly active and compelled to do things like you were driven by a motor? How often do you feel overly active and compelled to do things like you were driven by a motor? Initially, I had put rarely for this. More and more I'm realizing that, yeah, I have felt that way a lot of times when I'm excited about something or when I have something I want to do. I'm just doing it. It's just happening. Driven by a motor that the way of, of saying that, I think that kind of threw me off the first few times I read that question. The, when I, when I first did this form driven by a motor, I just, I wouldn't think of myself like that. Also, a motor is a really loud thing. That just makes me think of that typical presentation of ADHD that, that we thought was the typical presentation of ADHD. You know, kid running around, making lots of noise. I, I don't feel like a motorboat that's going out of control. Um, driven by by motor, though, I mean, that, that can be a quiet motor. It can be a motor that's just sort of um, making things automatically happen. Making things go, 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 keep going, you know? You can get lost in a project and you think, oh, I should pause for dinner. I should, I should pause for a glass of water. I'm thirsty. I need to pee. But then you just, you know, another, another few minutes, another few minutes, you know, the motor is still going. It's quietly going. That's me. So I'm going to say probably often. The first time I did this, I, I still have my answer here. It says rarely, but honestly, often. The more I recontextualize that, that question and really think about what it means, yeah, often. Part B, question seven. How often do you make careless mistakes when you have to work on a boring or difficult project? How often do you make careless mistakes when you have to work on a boring or difficult project? Initially, I said never, but actually very often. In workplaces in the past, and it's, it's painful to think about now, but I have actually... I had a lot of moments where 
people called out my careless mistakes. I I hate that term, careless mistakes. That just it sounds so personal. It sounds so intentional. Like you didn't have a care not to make that mistake. Oh, careless mistakes. Can they not just say mistakes? Not that that's better, but they even had to add careless. Oh, and that really resonates because careless mistakes, so many people have heard that term when when having ADHD. Um, so many people have have heard this when people are talking about their performance. So yeah, a lot. I initially said never, and now I'm going to say very often. Question eight. How often do you have difficulty keeping your attention when you're doing boring or repetitive work? How often do you have difficulty keeping your attention when you're doing boring or repetitive work? Well, I have so much difficulty that sometimes I can't even do the boring or repetitive work, like doing the dishes or the laundry or even taking a shower. Does that count? If I just can't do it, do I still have difficulty keeping my attention while I'm doing it? <laughs> it is so bad that often I just can't do the things and I put them off. Or if I'm doing a thing, I'll need to listen to a podcast while I do it, or an audiobook, or a YouTube video, or some music. I can't do it without doing something else that also gives me stimulation, dopamine. I'm going to say very often for that. Question nine. How often do you have difficulty concentrating on what people say to you? Even when they are speaking to you directly. How often do you have difficulty concentrating on what people say to you, even when they're speaking to you directly? That, um, well, I didn't think I had a problem with it. But then when I, again, when I really thought about it, there would be a lot of moments where I either had to figure out the context of what someone's, someone was saying, kind of as they kept talking, to see what they were talking about, and just didn't realize it because it happened so often. And also because it wasn't much of a problem, because I would often get the gist, and it wouldn't be a big deal. Or, if it's my husband, who I'm more comfortable with, you know, I would say, I'm, I'm so sorry, I didn't realize I wasn't paying attention for a minute, but my mind must have wandered. Like, can you repeat the last thing that you, or the way that that sentence started? I'm so sorry. Could you repeat that? Actually, a lot. This happens a lot. So I'm going to say very often. Question 10. How often do you misplace or have difficulty finding things at home or at work? Constantly. Misplacing things? Having a hard time finding things at home or at work? Oh my goodness. Even something I just had or just saw. Often. Often. Very, very often. <laughs> Question 11. How often are you distracted by activity or noise around you? Again, it's something that sometimes I wouldn't notice because if I'm talking to someone one-on-one -on -one, and if I need to appear like I am paying really good attention to them because it's important at that time, like because it's professional. Um, I won't really notice it because it doesn't become a big deal because the person won't notice. Maybe something will happen outside the window or there will be a noise and I lost half of what someone said in the sentence. 
And again, I'm doing that thing where I'm listening very, very carefully after that to pick back up on where they were going with something, on what they were talking about. And then if I succeed, well, then I'm not really thinking about what just happened and the fact that that's a problem and the fact that that creates more work for me to figure out, like, what's being said. <laughs> so, distracted by activity and noise around me? A lot. Very often. How often do you leave your seat in meetings or other situations in which you are expected to remain seated? Now, this one says, how often do you leave your seat? I'm also going to say, how often do you feel like you really want to leave your seat, but you don't? As I said in the last episode, I just won't do that. I just won't do that, because if it's expected of me that I sit, unless something really has to happen where I need to get up to get something for somebody or what have you, I'm staying seated. Even if I feel like getting up, I'm staying seated because it's polite. And that supersedes my urge. I actually just heard something on a, on a YouTube video. I am terribly sorry, I can't remember what her name was. Um, she was saying that she never thought that she had an issue with that. That that was a struggle for her at all. Until the pandemic hit and she was doing Zoom meetings... And then she realized that whenever the camera was off, she'd be up and walking around. And more often than not, she, she would just not sit down for an entire meeting. She would be walking around. Because she then could, without that social expectation there, without anyone seeing her, she could then follow that urge and do what naturally feels right. Moving around. <laughs> so... Just for a bit of thought there. Um, number 13. Oh, sorry. So 12. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure what to answer for that. And it's okay if sometimes you just don't know what to answer. Put a note in there to talk about with your, with your doctor or your specialist, whomever you're speaking with about this. Put a note in there as to why you're not sure if you can even answer that question. Because that's important too. Number 13. How often do you feel restless or fidgety? Restless or fidgety? See, fidgety, I take to mean a physical sort of fidgety. But then restlessness, I was sort of thinking physical for that too, but actually restlessness, that's more of a, an internal thing, isn't it? Feeling restless. Feeling like, ah, you're just not doing what you're needing to be doing, or that you're not sure what to do, but something's just making you feel restless. How often do you feel restless or fidgety? Actually, often. Very often. And it says restless or fidgety. So that could be both. That could be one or the other. You don't have to be physically fidgeting for that to be a yes. Just think about that. How often do you have difficulty unwinding and relaxing when you have time to yourself? How often do you have difficulty unwinding relaxing when you have time to yourself. I always thought that I didn't have much trouble with that, but actually I do when I really think about it very often again, because when I have time to myself, when I'm not medicated, especially when I'm not medicated, when I haven't been medicated, because actually now that I'm on medication, I am not going off again. Uh-uh. Um, 
it's been challenging because even with medication, if I'm having a bad day, if I'm having a bad symptoms day where, you know, they're, they're harder to manage, um, you know, I'll sit down at my, at my desk. I have a nice writing desk because I have a lot of analog hobbies and I'll have a hard time unwinding and picking a thing to do. And then my mind is just racing. And more often than not, I just stare at something and my brain is working and working and working, trying to center on something and it's not coming up with anything good and it's not settling down. And then I end up giving up and maybe watching something on YouTube or on TV. Yeah. So actually, in context, <laughs> very often, I do have a hard time with that. Um, number 15. How often do you find yourself talking too much when you're in social situations? How often do you find yourself talking too much when you're in social situations? I talk a lot. Um, but I've also had a lot of, um, like, I wouldn't say I talk a lot, a lot. Like, I, I have, uh, very good social skills. So I know about the importance. I feel very viscerally the importance of letting other people speak and the importance of having a good rhythm in conversation. So I can really feel when I need to, you know, pause in conversation or ask a question. Um, so that for me is not too bad, but I've also done a lot of, you know, I've, I've personally cultivated that skill. Um, but also I have noticed that if I'm really excited about something or interested in something, like let's say that I was in a class that I really like, um, or even if I'm in ADHD group, I'm one of the more likely people to speak up and talk about things or interject or comment. Um, too much? I don't know. Um, I think the reason that they might be saying talk too much is that uh, that is something that people with ADHD are likely enough to hear from other people. Oh, you, you know, you talk a little bit too much. I, you know, it's something that might resonate with a lot of people hearing talk too much. Um, it's also something that people might be worried about and might think about themselves because we have a lot of negative self-talk. So you might be saying to yourself, oh, I think I talked too much tonight. I'm not sure if I was letting people get their word in edgewise. So I, I don't have a problem talking too literal. Um, I'm not sure. That's a good question. I'm not going to answer it because I honestly don't know. Um, question 16. Yes. Question 16. When you're in, when you're in a conversation, how often do you find yourself finishing the sentence of people you were talking to before they can finish them themselves? When you're in a conversation, how often do you find yourself finishing the sentences of other people that you're talking to before they can finish them themselves? Constantly. Constantly. I say very often. For the simple fact that there isn't an extremely often. Otherwise, I'd say that. 17. Almost done. How often do you have difficulty waiting your turn in situations where turn-taking is required? Never for me because, well, as I mentioned in the last episode, 
I have a very, very deep-seated feeling of what is going on with other people, what, um, what I, what I need to do for other people, um, you know, making sure that other people get their turn is very important for me. Although, uh, that, that doesn't say, can you do it? Can you take turns when turn-taking is required? That talks about difficulty. How often do you have difficulty? Yeah, it can be hard because sometimes it can be really hard to keep an, an idea in my head or, you know, to, I'm ready to take my turn and say a thing or ask a question or, you know, do thing, get thing done, get on to next thing. Yeah, I do have that feeling. Definitely that feeling is there. Will I go ahead and do that and cut other people off? God, no. But, yeah. So once again, that's maybe something that, you know, might flag as a note. Because, yeah. But also difficulty. So, you know, since it says, do you have difficulty? I might say very often. Even if I can do that thing and not make other people miss their turns. Finally, number 18. How often do you interrupt others when they're busy? I didn't think I did that, but uh, actually a whole bunch. I even got called out for it by my boss at a workplace. And my God, I still feel that. I still feel that. Oh. The feeling of being called out for something like that is just really, oh, shame-inducing. And you, you feel it. It's it's just really, <clears throat> that barb is in there. <laughs> um, yep, yeah, no, that's that's a thing. That's definitely a thing for me. Um, I'm say often enough. So, for number one, if you had, so we had never, rarely, sometimes, often, very often. If you had sometimes, or more, so sometimes, often, very often, if you had any of those three, um, flag it, circle it, something, that is one of the markers that we are looking for. Number two, if you had, once again, sometimes, often, or very often, circle that too, flag it. Number three, same thing, if you had sometimes, often, or very often, flag that. For number four, if you had often or very often, often or very often, flag it. Number five, same thing, often or very often, flag. And number six, often or very often, again, flag. Part B. For number seven, if you had often or very often, flag that response. For number eight, if you had often or very often, flag that response. For number nine, if you had sometimes often or very often, one of those three, flag it. For number 10, if you had often or very often, often or very often, flag that. For number 11, again, often or very often, flag. For number 12, sometimes Often, very often, one of those three, flag. For number 13, we're down to two again, often or very often, often or very often, flag. For number 14, again, often or very often. And the same for number 15, often or very often. For number 16, we have sometimes, often, very often, one of those three, flag. 
17, often or very often, often or very often, and number 18, we're back to three, sometimes, often, or very often for number 18. For part A, if you had four or more answers that were flagged, that is your primary hint that you may have ADHD. So section one is sort of the main part of this diagnostic tool. And then in part B, so answers seven to 18, what it says here is that the frequency scores in this section provide additional cues that can serve as further probes into the patient's symptoms. So it gives more things for the doctor to zero in more on what this might look like for you and give more hints about whether or not you may have it. The main part though is part A. Now to talk about my presentation of ADHD and how the symptoms manifest for me personally. For some reason, and I couldn't possibly explain why because I just don't understand why, but I am kind of terrified to talk about this. It's not something that I am scared to talk about in general. Like, it's not something that I feel... Like, yes, there is stigma associated with having ADHD, and there's stigma associated to the symptoms, frankly, and to talking about them. Um, but I'm, I've gotten used to trying to ignore stigma as much as I can, um, having dealt with... Uh, with anxiety and with depression in the past. Um, those are things that, in order to destigmatize them, I have just sort of talked about them. Because if you don't talk about these things, the stigma will continue. And I'll be darned if I propagate more stigma. So I'm used to talking about uncomfortable things, so long as the person I'm talking to is, is wanting to hear about them. Um, but even so, I'm finding this really difficult. So I, I think if I was just talking to anybody, like to a, a person who was right here in the room, I don't think it would be quite this terrifying. For some reason, I think I'm almost afraid to record what I'm about to say. I'm not sure why. Maybe the permanence of it. Maybe... Maybe the fear that I'm going to miss something, forget to say something, and that, I don't know, I'll miss something important, and, and suddenly what I'm doing here won't help somebody the way that it could have, or I'm not entirely sure. I, I just feel suddenly very nervous. So I guess with that, that does bring me to one very important point before I start about how this presents for me. Um which is that this list of symptoms, this list of traits, is going to be non-exhaustive. There is no way that I could possibly list everything because I know I'm going to leave something out unintentionally. And also, I know that this list is not complete yet. I know that as I live with ADHD, now knowing what it is, and as I go through the emotional process of untangling and really looking at what it is that I'm dealing with here, the more I discover in terms of what is ADHD and what is it for me, 
what are things that are just me and what are things that are ADHD. So there's no way that this is going to be an exhaustive list. Now that I've said that, maybe I can just try to relax about it and just talk about it. So let's talk about the first day that I was medicated, because I think that that's actually a really sort of clear way of showcasing what is ADHD for me. The first day that I was medicated, I, I started on Adderall, Adderall XR, extended release. It's sort of a long acting Adderall, a, a slightly more um, tapered kind of release of Adderall. So I noticed suddenly that, well, suddenly, I noticed within an hour, it was working. It was kind of incredible. Did I feel superhuman like Lynette from Desperate Housewives? No, but I felt incredibly functional. I know, functionality, it's, it's such a, it's such a non-sexy, you know, term. It's such a, it's a non- fascinating thing to have. It's certainly not what I think anyone would think of as a super strength. But for me, it really was incredible. I felt functional. I felt awake for the first time in forever. I mean, I've had on occasion a good day and very few of those in a year, like a really good day where I'm, I'm actually energetic and awake, really feeling awake. It's like I would be half asleep all day, every day, and just exhausted physically, mentally, everything. But that day, suddenly it was like I was finally fully able to open my eyes, and like I was more able to interact with the world, like I could really touch things and feel them. I could really see things and see them. I could think, I could think clearly. I had been so used to the brain fog day in, day out for my entire life that having it removed was incredible. What's brain fog, you might wonder? Well, I never knew the term either. And this is part of the challenge as well of having undiagnosed ADHD. How would anyone know that you had it when you don't have the terms to even explain it? I understand it now because I have now read and educated myself a lot on ADHD. But before that, I had never heard of brain fog. So brain fog is really like a thick, heavy fog inside your brain. Not literally, figuratively. Think about trying to see your way into that, trying to feel your way in a fog where you can barely see half a foot in front of you. You can barely see your own hand if you hold it up to your face. Well, imagine trying to find things in a room that's filled with that kind of fog. Imagine trying to do things. Well, that's kind of how it feels, is that your brain is, for lack of a better word, foggy. Another way to explain it is, and I think I've said this in a previous episode, that feeling of actually it might have even been in this episode, that feeling of mentally, the exhaustion of walking through three feet of water. If you've ever been in the ocean or in a lake or what have you, if you're in a shallowish part, you know, and it goes up to maybe past your knee, up to your thigh, and you try to walk in that, 
or if you walked in a pool with that kind of water. There's there's a reason why um, some exercise classes happen in water. Water is heavy, and it's heavy even just to walk through it. You suddenly are dragging, dragging, dragging. And it takes a lot of muscle, it takes a lot of energy not to get very far. You're constantly meeting with this physical resistance. It's like that, except not physically. So translate that same energy requirement, that same exhaustion, that same working hard, trudging along to get to nowhere, basically, and apply that to mental energy, to trying to think through things, to trying to remember things, and just constantly losing grasp on something because it's just you're pushing through all this fog, and you don't even realize it's there because you just figure your brain's always been like this. Everyone's brain must be like this. How would you ever think that it's a thing? And also, what if you did realize? I mean, a lot of us are afraid to say something and then have someone either look at us funny in the medical office and say, mm, I'm not sure what you're talking about. Or that fear of, uh, that, you know, that fear that we all have. I don't know if you'd call it an irrational fear or a rational fear. I guess it really depends. But you know, that fear that we sometimes have of, oh gosh, what, what if they put me through a lot of tests? I, I don't know. What if there's really something wrong with my brain? Oh my gosh. I mean, if you didn't know it was going to be simple to diagnose like this, and that it was going to be non-invasive, I mean, and also emotionally, it's not exactly non-invasive. It, I mean, as per episode three, it was, it was a tough process for me to, to go through the diagnosis. Hopefully it's not for everybody, and I, I think it is easier for some people. But you know what I mean, there are lots of things that get in the way of talking about brain fog or talking about the lack of energy that a person has when they have ADHD. So A, how would you know? And B, if you knew, how would you talk about it? And would you be able to really tell somebody about it and express yourself? Would you be able to, to trust someone enough to do that? So yeah, brain fog. When I started the medication, the brain fog reduced. It was kind of incredible. Um, having that removed, and that's really what we're talking about here with medication. We're not talking about, we're not talking about, um, what's the word? Not embellishing, enhancing. We're not talking about enhancing things about the person. We're talking about removing barriers. We're talking about removing difficulties and clarifying what's going into the brain. As many ADHD specialists have described it, the medication isn't altering anything about the person. It's literally like a pair of glasses. A pair of glasses focuses the light that's coming in because the second it hits the eye, the lens in the eye is distorted and therefore anything that we see is, is never going to come in clearly right from the point where it comes into the eye. So you need the glasses in front of the eye to adjust the light before it comes into the eye. It's the same thing with the medication. The medication helps us receive signals in the brain. It helps them come in stronger so that we can actually have them relay properly and then be able to interpret things in a, in a more visceral way, in a way that functions better, in a way that's clearer. That is what it's doing. It's removing an impediment. And it's also not something that alters us. 
just like the glasses. You take them off, nothing has changed about you physiologically. It's the same thing with the medication. If I stop taking Adderall tomorrow, I am just the same as I was before I started taking it. So, I started the Adderall. I felt awake finally. The brain fog was reduced. I was feeling emotionally lighter. Because things were coming in in a way that was clearer, I felt this, this self-assuredness of being able to do things that naturally just comes with feeling awake and feeling capable and feeling functional. I knew that I could do things and I felt like I could do them and then I did them. And then the more I did things, the more I felt amazing because it's this feedback loop. ADHD, untreated, can be this terrible feedback loop because you're constantly under the pressure of needing to do certain things. And as we all know, if the thing that you need to do isn't either fascinating to you, like personally interesting, or if it isn't immediately urgent to the point where you've got a fire lit under you to do that thing now. If you don't have either of those circumstances, it's not getting done. It's getting put off. Speaking of, that was an alarm that just went off so that I can remember to wash the cat's food and water bowls, which is a really hard thing for me to get to. And so I have an alarm. Coping mechanism. <laughs> now, where was I here? So I was talking about um, the feedback loop. So unmedicated, we have a terrible feedback loop of not being able to do the things that we need to do just in day-to-day -day life, normal things like doing our laundry, getting our banking done, um, getting a work task done on time. There are things that when we don't do them, and we let them lapse a little longer, a little longer until they do become absolutely urgent, well, they're still on our mind weighing on us. It's just that we know that we can't do them yet. And so they're weighing on us. They're weighing on us. They're weighing on us. And we feel the weight of not doing it. We feel that building pressure of, oh gosh, I have this to-do list that's growing and I have no agency to get it done. I don't know if I can actually whittle it down. Therefore, it's becoming this big burden. And... You also have the extra weight of feeling like a terrible person because you're not functional. I feel bad about myself because I can't do X, Y, Z. What's wrong with me? Now, the reverse of that on the day that I had started the medication was that I felt great. Not just once I took it, but also once I started getting things done. It was this positive feedback loop that I think is very logically understandable. I think this will make a lot of sense to a lot of people, even if you don't have ADHD. It was this feedback loop of, okay, I can do some things. And then I got a few things done. And then I felt amazing about myself. I felt great that I could get these things done. And I just, I, I felt like a wonderfully functional person. I was proud of myself. I was happy with my progress. That was a wonderful, wonderful feeling. A side note on that, there was an episode, I can't remember which one, but it was from YouTuber Jessica McCabe. Uh, her channel is How to ADHD. 
And she had been talking about dopamine and how that, how it behaves differently, how it's received differently for us, for people with ADHD. Um, she was, she has the more scientific explanation of it. I, I couldn't possibly hold that in my brain. I should have taken some notes, but anyway, have a look at the episode. If you, if you search for that, uh, for dopamine and how to ADHD in YouTube, I'm sure you'll find it. Um, but she was talking about, uh, how for people who don't have ADHD, typically, if they look at something that's not exciting to do, that's not like personally fun to do, like filling out a tax form, there is a release of dopamine when they think about getting it done that makes them able to do it. And then there's another release of dopamine for having gotten it done, etc. So for us, what happens is a little bit different. If we, we, we don't get the release of dopamine, the, the happy feeling from thinking about a task and thinking about getting it done. It doesn't happen for us. So for us, when we're looking at laundry, if we don't enjoy laundry, let's say, because some people do, right on. But for me, mm -mm, that's a problem for me. Even though I like my clothes, I like looking at things that are tidy and neat, I like it being neat, laundry is a problem area for me, even so. So if I'm looking at doing laundry, I don't get that hit of dopamine at the thought of having gotten it done, having accomplished it. I don't get that. And also, when I do get it done, the release of dopamine is lesser and is more quickly absorbed and dispelled. So it doesn't last as long. The happy feeling doesn't last as long. So that is a natural impediment to getting things done that we don't enjoy and that aren't absolutely 100% urgent, 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 because that's the other thing that leads us to getting stuff done when we have ADHD, especially untreated. So with medication, things like that become a little easier. And that's also part of what was happening that day was I was able to get those things done, things that weren't necessarily super exciting or super stimulating. I was able to do things and then I was able to get dopamine and it was you know, it was lasting a little longer. It was making me feel like a happy, normal, healthy person. And then it was just lasting and lasting. And, you know, one good thing turns into another. You feel good about something, suddenly you're feeling more emotionally able and more energetically able to do something else that's also productive. When you're feeling awake and capable and energetic, of course you can do more than when you're feeling groggy, physically lethargic and exhausted. So that was fantastic. I'm going to tell you about some of the things that I was able to do. Like, let's look at some examples. So that first day, I was so thrilled with what I did that I actually wrote down notes. There's a thing called draw your day that I do. I don't do it daily because I would not be capable of doing that. There are always going to be days where I just have less energy or I have other things that I want to do and I can't, I have a hard time with things that require a lot of continuity. 
That's also why I would have a lot of trouble with something like a bullet journal. For me, that would be very stressful because I would feel bad about missing a day. So draw your day for me is something that I do whenever I want. I draw a day. So draw your day, it's a practice that was made by um, Samantha Dion Baker. She's a New York artist and she had done a lot of electronic art, um, you know, like a design, electronic design on the computer. And she was wanting to practice more of her hand drawing and, and things like that, you know, just more of her freehand, pencil to paper type thing, manual analog art. That's a very clunky way of explaining it, I'm sorry. But uh, she created this practice called Draw Your Day, where she incorporated these wonderful mixes of just, you know, bits of paper if she wanted to, or tapes, you know, washi tapes, colorful tapes, or um, different types of writing styles, you know, like different typefaces, different little, tiny little write-ups of things that happened, and little drawings of what happened. Sometimes a larger drawing, sometimes, you know, one larger drawing and two smaller drawings. She would just arrange these into a one-page, sort of written, but mostly visual, colorful account of what happened that day. So, sometimes I do those. I've been doing them for about three years, and I have about 80. So as you can see, you know, 80 for three years, I'm not doing it every day, clearly. But they're very precious to me. And what I wanted to do was photograph them all and make them into an album that I can access online. And so what I did that day was I photographed each and every one. And then within Google Photos, now it's irritating, but every time you want to rotate a photo in Google Photos, you have to press about five different sort of quote-unquote quote buttons. It's, it's a, a little series of like five different steps that you have to take. Very simple, but just, you know, click this, click that, click that, click that, click this, done. Um, so, I mean, you're doing that a lot of times because probably half of them were not uh, rotated correctly. Even when I had tried to make sure that the um, gyroscope in the gyroscope? Gyroscope, I think. Anyway, that the gyro in the phone was correctly balanced before I took the photo. It's still kind of hard because you're you're photographing something on a flat surface, you know, on the table. So sometimes it still spins it the wrong way in the end, and then you have to adjust about half of them. So, you know, probably about 40 times I had to do that. It was a very... You know, it was a tedious job. It wasn't mentally stimulating, but I got it done. I was able to actually push through and get that done, get all of the pictures flipped and put them into an album so that I could access them and share them as I wanted. Another thing I did that day was similarly not the most stimulating task. Um, from my husband's high school days, he has this box of 60 colored Laurentian pencils. Laurentian, Laurentian, I'm not sure how people say that. Um, colored pencils from art class, and they're still in great shape. And I use them for Draw Your Day. And every now and again, if I'm not careful, 
little fella gets his hands on them, dumps them all out, and then I have to reorganize them. So that day, I managed to get around to that because I, I had to reorganize them by color because that's the easiest way when you're dealing with 60 different colors. It is so much more pleasurable to not have to hunt for your color amongst all of those and then see if it's, ah, is it really the most appropriate brown? Is it really the most appropriate green? No, it's so much easier when they're all nicely organized. So I managed to just do that, dump them all out in the table, organize them by color, really get them down by shade. And I actually felt okay doing it. I didn't feel annoyed or, you know, I wasn't groaning through the process. I was fine. One thing I was able to do that day as well, which some days I get around to just by sheer must do it kind of willpower, but that that day wasn't a problem, was that I read and responded to all of my texts. I am so, so, so happy to have nice friends, to have people who want to talk to me. So I'll, I'll reiterate that. I love texts. What's annoying about this is that I do want to respond to the texts. What's annoying about it is that I like reading them and I like sending them. But my ADHD sometimes gets in the way of that, often gets in the way of that, in fact. As per episode two, if you listen to that, and if you didn't have have a, a quick listen, it's not the longest episode, um, but it talks about why that's difficult for me in general. And sometimes it's still difficult to me. Now, on that first day, the Adderall was working a little bit better than it would later, because with Adderall, that can happen. You know, it works a little better at the start, and then it you know, decreases a little bit in effectiveness for some people. It can happen. Um, you know, so sometimes I do still have a, a bit of a hard time with it, especially if I've got a backlog and I'm feeling really stressed about that. Again, see episode two. But generally, my Adderall helps me with that, and that day it really did. I was able to read and respond to all of them and just take the time to sit down and do that. Another thing that's going to sound like such a small thing, but for me was kind of incredible, um, was I was noticing that I was able to put things back in their actual place. Uh, for, for example, I had put some perfume on because I, I really enjoy wearing perfume when I'm at home. Um, it's a, it's a hobby of mine, um, researching different perfumes, uh, understanding the notes, compositions. It's, it's a thing that I find really fascinating. So I was putting on some perfume, and instead of putting it, quote-unquote, back in kind of a shortcut place, which I would sometimes do, just, oh, I'll just, mm, I'll put it over here, you know? <laughs> no, I actually stopped and put it back in its proper place, which actually was probably just as far as putting it in the shortcut place. But again, my my brain without medication would normally just think, uh, put it wherever. You know, it just wouldn't even occur to me to take the time to put it somewhere else because my brain is so exhausted and so fogged up that I just, mm -mm. so messes just kind of happen when you're not medicated. At least for me, they do. Maybe for some people, they find more pleasure, like more dopamine in, in cleaning. Um, for me, that's not been the case. So that is a struggle that I've had. But what happened was, instead of doing that, because I almost went to put it back in a shortcut place, and then I sort of kept hold of it, 
and then I automatically just didn't let go. My hand just kept hold of it, and my brain, sort of, the light went on, and it said, let's put it back over there, where it's supposed to be. Yeah, let's do that. And then I went to do that. And that happened with a lot of things. You know, if I was taking a spice out of the cupboard, using it, and then if I went to just put it on the counter and set it down where it would probably live for the rest of the night before I finally remembered to put it back, or one of us did, you know, I that would happen where I would just, I would go to put it down in its sort of shortcutty place. And then my, my hand would just stay on it. Like my brain said, wait a minute here. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. Let's think about this. And then I just automatically, like, my husband would see me with something in my hand. And then I would go, I would set the thing down on a surface with my hand still around it. And then it would come back up and it would go to wherever it was supposed to live. Bizarre. It was like this amazing thing. I, now, that to me felt like a superpower, I gotta say. And it was the same thing with my slippers. You know, instead of just taking them off and leaving them where I took them off, wherever that might be, wherever I decided I want to, you know, oh, I'm over here. Oh, I feel like taking them off. I just left them normally wherever I was when I decided, oh, I'll take them off. But this time, suddenly, I was able to take them off because my feet were too hot. And then, you know what? I will take these and I will tuck them neatly over here where they're supposed to be. Oh, how lovely. And then I felt really great about that too. It was just this nice feeling of being able to really interact with the world around me and really take some control over the things I was doing. It was great. It was just incredible. Um, another example, again, this is gonna, like, if you don't have ADHD, um, th this might sound bizarre to you and I'm almost ashamed, but uh, you know, ADHD. Um, but we have child locks on just about everything right now because, you know, we have a small kid. And so we also have a child lock on the, um, on the cabinets under the sink in the kitchen for the garbage. And so what occasionally I would do is because my brain was just, I was so exhausted and I just, Oh, even some tiny impediment like that would actually make me collect a few things of garbage or what have you in maybe like a bowl up on the counter high up. And then when that's finally full, then I put that stuff into the garbage because opening the garbage every single time, undoing the, the child lock every single time was just like, oh God, I don't know if I have the mental energy for this, which is incredible. It's such a tiny thing that of course I'm able to do physically, but mentally I just couldn't do it. And you can see how this can really, unmedicated, this can really get in the way of doing just normal, functional things. Because if you're thinking that a person should be able to just undo the child lock every time and put something in the garbage when they want to, you're not wrong. And that is why this is such a huge problem. Because with every tiny thing like that through the day, they all add up into this mess of can't do, can't do, can't do. And creating extra steps for later, because instead of just putting something in the garbage, I would then have to do two steps. I would have to put it somewhere, collecting on the counter, in a bowl, step one, and then step two, later, put all that in the garbage, instead of just putting the stuff in the garbage, every time. You can sort of see how that adds up. Um, and the last thing I have on the list of stuff that I could finally do 
was that I, um, I had seen somebody for a, like an outdoor drop-off. We were swapping some things. Um, and, uh, I think I was receiving a book from somebody and we had chatted and I was going to send them a video that I was mentioning while we chatted, um, from YouTube. I was going to share a video after of like, oh, this thing that I mentioned. And, um, once I went inside, I actually immediately after I washed my hands, did that thing. Normally washing my hands would just make me totally forget what I was going to do. And then I would forget possibly entirely to share that thing. And no, instead I was able to say, hey, here's the video I was telling you about. Here you go. Done. It, it was great. So I had less things taking up room on my mental to-do list as well, because I was just able to get the thing out and done. Like those are the things that add up when you can't get them out of the way. So it was, it was fantastic. One good thing led to another. It was fantastic. Um, what else now? Uh, a little note on, well, here, I'd like to make a note on stress. I'd like to make a note on the effectiveness of medication. And I'd also like to talk about very briefly, uh, sort of the list of things that I was having trouble doing before I was medicated. And that sometimes I still have a little difficulty with, um, why don't we look at the list of things that I couldn't do? Cause this is a list that I had from before I was medicated. This is a list of things that I had in my mind. Um, so that when I went to see Dr. Wong, the specialist on ADHD, I was able to have some things kind of, okay, written down, like, okay, you know, not just floating around my mind of all these things that I hope to mention that I might forget. Okay. Um, so obviously top of the list was texts and emails and letters. Um, texts and emails, definitely like those were, oh, so incredibly difficult. Letters though, letters, those are something that I really love as a hobby. I like to write letters. I love fountain pens. I love that tactile feeling of writing something. I like the, you know, the fun of using different materials and um, of preparing something nice for somebody to receive, uh, decorating it maybe. It's a lot of fun. I like it. But sometimes I have a hard time calming my brain enough to sit down and do that thing. It can be really hard because sometimes what I'd almost like is to watch a video at the same time, but then I can't watch a video and listen to it while thinking about what I want to say. I can either listen to somebody talking, like really listen, or I can write. And tuning someone out when they're talking while I'm trying to write is difficult for me. So I, I couldn't really either do that either. And it's not that I just wanted the noise. It's that I, I wanted content. I wanted something to focus on more because sometimes what we need with ADHD is extra stimulation. You know, sometimes um, like if you're doing dishes, you need to listen to a podcast or, or something like that. You know what I mean? You need to do a few things at the same time. But of course, listening to a podcast or something while you're doing dishes, that's possible. Listening to a podcast and actually like listening to the content while thinking about what you want to say to somebody, a little less possible because you're using your language centers for something different. Maybe some people are capable. That would be awesome. I can't. Um, so that can be hard for me. Same thing with journaling. I love 
to document everything that I do in a day, but sometimes it can be hard to write it all down. And it's almost a chore sometimes, even though I really, really want to. Um, and that's, that's part of what can create sort of feelings of, you know, just feeling really down. Because some of the things that you love to do can sometimes also be something where when you're untreated for ADHD, they can be really hard to do. And so then you're also not getting that dopamine of having done the thing that you love because you just have a hard time getting started on them. Yeah, same thing with drawing and painting. Sometimes I just have a hard time getting those started, even though I adore those projects. Writing, creative writing, also a hard time with that sometimes. Pen cleaning, I do like to clean my pens, but sometimes it's hard to get started on that too. Um, clothes, laundry, organizing my clothes and doing my laundry, very difficult things. I don't know if you can hear that, but the child is asking for me. I will try and wrap this up quickly. Um, uh, even things like showering or washing my face, doing my skincare, slowing down for those things could be something that I didn't feel able to do, that I would just say, oh, I'll do it later, I'll do it later, I'll do it later. And I would really put them off. Same thing for starting a new book. If I wanted to read a book, getting started into it could be really hard. You know, it's one thing if you're absorbed right into it already, but if you're beginning to read a new book, sometimes that can be very, very hard. Exercise, oh gosh, no. Exercise that's just like, that's not a walk or something. Exercise that's like exercise, like just doing the repetitive motions. Uh, uh. And dishes, that's another thing. Oh my goodness, doing dishes. Um, I would also have difficulty if my husband was talking to me about something and then suddenly I had a thing that sort of sparked in my mind and, and that I wanted to say about that. Sometimes I would even have to say, sorry, can you pause a second? I just, I, I just want to say something about that because if I don't say it literally right now, it's gone. I know it's gone. Because, um, you know, in just casual conversation, you don't have a notebook ready to write your thing down. Um, so I would have to sometimes say, okay, I'm done. All right, continue. And oh, he was really cool about it, but I would be annoyed at myself that I that I had to do that. Um going into a room to get something and then forgetting what what was it that I was in here for oh my god I was in here for something there was something I was literally that I needed to grab to do a thing and I don't even know what it could possibly have been and then it takes you a minute you know you have to leave the room go back to whatever you're doing and eventually you realize oh I need that thing for this and then suddenly you actually have to repeat the word to yourself of what the item is repeat 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 yeah Sometimes that was the only way to not forget again what the item was. Listening to somebody and then tuning out unintentionally, not because they were boring or something or because I wasn't interested, but just my brain would suddenly tune out and think about something else and then I'd be back and I'd have to say, oh my God, what happened? What, what were you saying? Oh my goodness, I didn't even realize I tuned out. It wasn't intentional at all. But I just realized that for the last 15 seconds, I don't think I heard anything you said. I'm so sorry. And I've had to get used to apologizing a lot 
I think a lot of us probably have because there are so many things that we have to be sorry for so regularly. It's a real challenge. The last thing I'll say that I was noticing as a symptom before I got medicated was that my brain would be both bored and busy at the same time. Bored and busy at the same time. Now you might wonder, how on earth is that possible? Those two things are opposites. Uh, yeah, one would think. But my brain would be bored. It would be unable to think of something that was palatable to do, something that I'd feel able to do. So it would be sort of bored and looking for something to do. And it would also just be busy and restless, reaching for things, you know, trying to think of things to do, constantly grinding away, grinding away, trying to think, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? What can we do? And I liken that to, I don't know if I mentioned this in this podcast, but it's, it's a way that I've come to think of, of that feeling. If you've seen the first Harry Potter movie or read the book, when they're going through all of those, um, those safety measures, those, those, um, you know, those trials, when they're, when they're trying to get to, ah, uh, it's not the Chamber of Secrets, you know, when they're trying to get to the, the, the place that, the thing with the, with, with Professor Quirrell, you know, they're, they're trying to get to the, the thing, I think the, the stone, maybe, they're trying to get to the Philosopher's Stone, and they're in that room, uh, where there's a key that's gonna let them out of that room and into the next, but the key has wings, and then suddenly there's about a million other keys that just, they're all flying around. Or maybe they always were. Uh, but anyway, th there's one key out of a whole bunch, and they all have wings, each one. They're almost like uh, dragonflies. And they're just flying around, flying around, flying around, and Harry's got to catch the right one. Not only does he have to pick the right one, he's got to catch it. <laughs> and he's got to unlock the door. It's basically that. It's like you have all of these thoughts that are flying around you, and you're just trying to lay hands on one. You're just trying to catch one so that you can go forward with that one thought or that one idea or that one activity. But you just can't seem to catch it. <laughs> So it's all these options floating around, just flying around chaotically, and I can't catch it. Just can't catch it. So that's that's basically the brain is bored. All of those keys floating around are ideas for things that I could do. Uh, I could watch this show. I could call this friend. I could sit down and draw this thing. I could, you know, activities. Little tiny things that I could do. And I can't catch any of them because if, if you can't, if you can't land on an idea and take hold of it and direct your brain into that idea, then you're still stuck in the searching mode, searching, searching, searching. But also you're bored because you're not doing anything while you're searching. So there's that lack of dopamine plus the super unfocused nature of just the chaotic, foggy brain trying to, you know, imagine trying to catch one of those keys while they're all flying around while that room is full of brain fog. There you go. So yeah. Um, that is basically my brain. Quick note on stress. I have been noticing, uh, because I went through something in December, and I was noticing, I really thought that my medication wasn't working well at all. 
But then once that stress was removed, it started working. It, it started, I, I thought that it just wasn't working for me anymore and that I might have to switch to something else. But then the symptoms, my, my ADHD symptoms got less severe and the, the medication was more effective. It, stress and ADHD, that I know that there's a relationship there and it has an effect on our symptoms, but I don't think I realized to what extent. And I'd, I'd be curious to know more about that as well. Um, and actually, during that period, I had decided to not take my Adderall for a day because I thought, okay, well, this is, this is clearly not working. And who knows, maybe if I don't take it, I'll eat a little earlier that day because it can, can suppress the appetite a little bit. You have to be a little bit more intentional about eating. Um, and oh boy, did I regret that. It was an incredibly painful day. Um, when I say painful, I don't mean physically painful, but I, I mean, having that brain fog back, having that exhaustion back and the, the chaotic, just the mind full of chaos, full of fog and disorganization and not being able to land on anything and, and just having to push through that constantly all day. It's, it's like all day trying to move around through three feet of water. It, it was exhausting. It was absolutely exhausting. And it was kind of torture, too. It, it just felt like torture. Like, now that I knew the difference, oh, man, returning to that state was incredible. I, I, I suddenly realized why I had been tired all of my life and why I had not felt great. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it was awful. I will never do that again, I'll tell you that. Um, it was bad. I really didn't enjoy it at all. And of course, after a certain time, I didn't want to take my medication because, you know, if I took it, like normally I would take it in the morning, but if I took it at 5 p.m., well, imagine if you drank a cup of coffee at 10 o'clock at night, if coffee works for you. Um, you know, it, it would have just been bad if I had taken it that late in the day at 5 p.m., let's say, or 6 p.m., I would have not slept that night probably because it would have been really, really late and it would take quite a long time for me for the effects to wear down because for me, the effects of Adderall tend to last for quite a few hours. Uh, so yeah, even though it wasn't doing everything that I hoped it would, likely because of the stress, um, it still was doing something and oh my goodness, Will I never do that again, even if it's not working? I will just keep taking what I'm taking until I can get onto something else if my doctor thinks that that's appropriate. Um, but yeah, all that to say, uh, medication, you know, the, the range of effectiveness can, can vary a little bit, how effective it is, what things it affects, what things it allows you to do, um, and how well it's working. But even when it's not working amazing, sometimes it's still doing more than you might think it is. Um, I learned that lesson that day. And it's possible that another medication might affect me differently, might have different side effects. Uh, this one doesn't have very much in terms of side effects for me. Uh, sometimes a little bit of loss of appetite, but that's about it. Um, but different medications, different side effects, possibly different benefits as well. Um, and this is so far the first one that I've been on. It's the second dosage uh, that I've had because I started at 10 milligrams and now I'm on 15. Um, but otherwise I don't have experience with other kinds. So let me add that as a, an important note when I'm talking about being medicated 
for ADHD. It's my first one. It's my only one so far. So I hope that that helps a little bit to illuminate what ADHD looks like for me in particular and what it can look like for people. You know, how subtle these traits can be, how subtle these these symptoms are and how they can vary and why they can be sort of hard to pin down and also why even if they're subtle they can have a huge impact on our day-to-day life and on our mental health. So yeah thanks for staying with me through this super personal episode Um, and uh, I hope it was useful. I hope it was at the very least interesting. I'll um I'll see you in the next. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye.